Alright, so we're going to be going through, we're on the, we're moving through on Journey 180, we're on the timeline. Um, we have got a couple announcements. Um, number one, if for those who go on Tuesday night, um, this next Tuesday there is no mine. Um, we have a national conference that's coming in. Um, that's why I saw Brian Wurzel this morning. He's coming out to play for the uh, national conference as well. Um, it's going to be an amazing conference on church planning, so it's going to be a lot of fun. We're excited about it. Um, so there will be no mine Tuesday night. However, if you have not got your tickets for Michael Jr., um, and I don't even know if it's sold out yet, but you might want to get those. Those are going to be incredible. If you're interested in going to the conference, um, let me know, and I'll try to get you in on the, the the cheaper rate. They're $90 tickets for the three days, but it is an amazing conference, breakout sessions, um, really fun time, so that's going to be happening Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday on campus, all across campus. Um, so, yeah, a lot of changes going on, getting ready for the conference. Um, we saw our big... Uh, <laughs> Our, our big uh, wall. How many saw that? Th- how many went to first service? Anybody? How many going to third service? Anybody? Well, that's good to know. Okay, so everybody here from fir- first service? Okay. So, yeah, we got the, the big wall, wall of glory in there. It's amazing. So that's going to be there for the conference. Um, we are rolling through. So we, we've covered, so far in Journey 180, we have covered all the way from, obviously, the beginning of time. Um, we've gone through, and we, we've guesstimated that Noah, at least the flood part of the Noah story, would have been around 2,500. Um, I'm going to guess that Noah is probably born somewhere around 3,000, but uh, 2,500 for around for the flood story. So, and so in our minds, we know that right after that, then would be the Tower of Babel and, and that whole splitting um, of languages and the dispersing of the different nations, the 70 nations that we see in Genesis chapter 10. Um, Genesis chapter 12, from that point, obviously starts the story of Abraham, and the rest of the Bible really talks about the story of Abraham and his descendants, so we don't pay too much attention to what's happening in China, what's happening in India, or over in the Western Hemisphere, or Northern Europe, um, because we're following this thread, this bloodline of Christ. So Abraham um, is in Genesis chapter 12, and we put that around um, 2000 B.C. If we want to be more technical, it's probably a little closer to 2100 B.C., but... Um, the next signpost that we've tried to put in your brain is Moses, and Moses would have been around 1500 um, B.C., so that puts everything between Abraham and Moses in that nice old 500-year pocket. It actually puts it between about 2100 and 1900, because we know um, the Hebrews were in Egypt for about 350 years, where the Bible doesn't talk about anything. There was just uh, 350 years of silence. Um, then Moses is um, um, brought about... Um, we go from Joseph, um, who was the the shepherd who became prince of Egypt. Then we go from Moses, who became prince of Egypt and went down to shepherd. Um, I say down, I shouldn't. That's not a, a lower class by any stretch, at least as far as the Bible is concerned. Um, from Moses, we, 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 we walk through the, the wanderings. We see um, through Joshua as they go into the promised land. Once they get into the promised land, we see uh, a period of about 400 years um, that takes us right up to date or right up to David on our signpost. Um, about 400 years to where uh, the Israelites were ruled by a series of judges. So we see the judges that are listed um, throughout. Um, then we get into the, the three kings that are in the united um, monarchy. These are three kings that ruled over all of Israel, all 12 tribes, starting out with the bad king, who is Saul. Then the good king, we'll put that in quotes, but the good king, David, um, and then following him was Solomon. 
Okay, so that's around 1000 BC. Tuesday night we handed out one of these things. So for those of you who are there, this will be a real, real quick review. But for those of you who weren't, make sure you grab one of these. Because everything that happens after that is, is dealing with the divided kingdom. Is dealing with the divided kingdom. So as for, um, for all 12 tribes were ruled, um, David, Solomon, um, Saul ruled the, the 12 tribes. Solomon's um, sons, or two of his sons, ended up splitting the kingdom. So ten of the tribes went up north, and that's what we call Israel. And twelve of the, or two of the tribes went south. That's what we call Judah. Um, Judah's capital is Jerusalem. Um, Israel's capital was um, Samaria. And so we, we get to those, those two um, different split kingdoms. And then from basically, um, as soon as you get into the kings, the whole history there is the history of the split kingdom. So you'll see in your Bible, you'll see different paragraphs in there and and it will list blank king of Israel, blank king of Judah. And so what we tried to do is put together a a little chart here that shows who is the king of Judah and who is the king of Israel at the same time. Because a lot of these kings ruled during the same time. And then on the far right or on the far left, the bookends here, we showed you um, who was the prophet that was the prophet to these kings. So when we talked about prophet, we said a prophet is a mouthpiece of God. Um, they Basically, the prophet is someone who God uses to be his mouth. And he um, proclaims um, different things to the people. Um, there's three different elements of prophecy that, that we see happening. We see prophecy um, happening within the realm of the prophet's life. So he would warn, for example, the king of, of Israel saying... If you don't do this, this will occur, or this will occur to you, or, and those needed to take place because the the test of a prophet. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter eighteen, it tells you explicitly what the test of the prophet is, and the test of the prophet is that if they are not a hundred percent right, then they are a hundred percent wrong. If that makes sense, you have to be right on every prediction. If you're missing even one, even if you're 99, 99 out of 100, you are a false prophet. So according to Deuteronomy 18, you would be classified as a false prophet. No one is to listen to you, and actually you would have a death sentence upon you. Okay, so that is pretty strict on that. Nostradamus is one of our more famous um, seers of the last um, of the last millennia, and he was right, some say... At best, I've heard maybe 14% of the time. I think it's closer to about 4% of the time he was right. And almost every time he was right, within the same prophecy of his rightness, he was wrong on another piece of it. And so he never really had one specific prophecy that went, oh my goodness, that, w- that was awesome, That what he just did. He would be a false prophet, okay? In the Bible, even if, man, even if you were... Again, 99%. Just one time you're wrong. So that is critical for us to understand when we're dealing in modern day terms with other religions that um, have begun based off a prophet. Okay, so you got to really be careful on that. All right, so starting in, in um, the one other thing we talked about was if you look at First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles are, are, are basically the same thing as First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. So those four books, 
and the two chronicles are, are basically the same thing. A little different way of um, pronouncing things. They do have some new things. But for the most part, if you just read the Bible straight through, you'll get to Chronicles and go, man, haven't we talked about this already? Um, and the answer is yes. Okay, So it's very similar to the Gospels. Um, four different stories from different angles to different. Okay, The other thing that we talked about is throughout the Bible, throughout after you get past Second um, Chronicles, we start getting into prophets, okay? For those of you who've been around the church a while, you've heard of the, the term major prophet, minor prophet. Major prophet simply is this, that their book is bigger than the minor prophets. It doesn't mean they're any greater than the minor prophets. Um, they just happen to write a larger book, so they were classified as a major prophet. Um, because, And we know there's no... Um, hierarchy there because probably one of the greatest prophets out of that time is Elijah and he doesn't have any book. Okay, so um, so on here you'll see the different prophets um, and who they um, prophesied to. Sometimes it was either to the king of the north, king of the south. Sometimes they did prophesy to both. Um, sometimes, as in uh, the example of Jonah, they weren't a prophet really to either one. I mean, they were the prophet, but their major storyline is actually being told to prophesy to another kingdom. Okay, and so Jonah was told to go talk to who? Nineveh, which was the capital of who? Assyria. Okay, so he was told to do that. Of course, Jonah said, nope. Um, so as we look at the prophets, whether it's the minor, majors, what I want you to be able to do, instead of reading the Bible just straight through, when you get to, for example, um, let's when you get to... Uh, Let's just find one here. When you get to 2 Kings 13 and you see Joash, king of Israel, you need to go on the chart, find Joash, king of Israel, find out who his prophet was, and then go read that prophet at the same time you're reading this in 2 Kings or in 1 Kings. You need to read them at the same time so you understand both sides of it. Okay? So let's go right now to 2 Kings, and we'll pick this up. As you look on your chart, You start somewhere around um, um, 1,050, um, and those are fairly accurate. Um, they could be off just by a couple years. You see Saul, and then you see the split kingdom around 931. Um, and then from there, you, you see the split kingdoms going all the way down for a period of about 400 years. Now, you'll notice on the right side, Israel stops at 7, 721. That's because at that point... They were taken over by Assyria. So we talked about Nineveh. They were taken over by Assyria. And from that point on, Israel ceases to be. Okay? The ten tribes that were, that were up in the northern kingdom absolutely ceased to exist. Okay? Now they weren't, they weren't murdered. They weren't totally eliminated. What happens is they were taken over by Assyria and then they just assimilated into their culture. Okay? So they were no longer um, pure, pure Israel there. This will come back to play when we start looking at the Gospels and you see how those, uh, those Jews would go up through this area, Samaria, and they wouldn't even touch it. Okay? Samaritans were the lowest of low. Here's why. Okay? Because Samaritans at this point weren't real Jews in the minds of the southern kingdom. They were mixed with the Assyrians. They were they were lower, the lowest of lows. Um, so 
that is where we get that. You'll see that Judah actually carries on a little longer. Um, they go all the way down about another 150 years, 130 years or so. And then Judah is taken over. Now, they are not taken over by Assyria. Who are they taken over by? The Babylonians. Okay? But this is a different type of takeover. Instead of being totally sacked and eliminated and assimilated um, within to um, Assyria, and by the way, a lot of the, the ten tribes up north, yes, a lot of them were assimilated into Assyria. A lot of them dispersed up into, uh, up into Europe. Okay? And so that's why we get a whole lot of Jewish race up into Europe, up into Russia, and then, of course, that would play back in our, our last century. Um, so Judah, however, was not sacked. They were actually taken captive. Okay? So they were taken captive and moved from Jerusalem over to Babylon. Now, for those who have a, a mental map, I want you to picture um, the Middle East. For those of you who have an actual map in the back of your Bible, you might want to um, look at that. Um, in the Middle East, you've got um, on the far left side, or what would be the west side, you've got Jerusalem, you've got Israel, and then you've got a desert, and then you've got Babylon, okay? Over on the far east side, over as we're getting closer towards India. It would be modern-day Iraq, okay? Babylon is synonymous with Baghdad, okay? It's the same place, okay? So when we're talking about the ancient kingdom of Babylon, that's what it is. Now, this isn't the first time Babylon has actually made a presence um, into the, the Bible culture. Any, anybody remember where it first arose? Anybody? you got to go back about 1,500 years um, to, or to Abraham. Actually, no, I'm sorry. you got to go back about 2,000, 2000 years. Um, Babylon is where the Tower of Babel would have been. Okay, So as they're coming off the ark... Um, the ark is in what would be modern-day Turkey. Um, they follow the rivers, okay? And they follow that rivers, and they eventually settle down to where Baghdad, Babylon, where the Tower of Babel would have been placed, and they decided to build themselves their own city. And they, and they erected this big, this big mountainous um, tower, the Tower of Babel. God obviously was displeased, um, and that's where he dispersed them um, via com- uh, confusing their language. From that point on, for a while, Babylon was a major world power um, in Mesopotamia. Okay, so a lot of you, a lot of fifth grade students, or those of you who have fifth grade students, you had to go through that homework with them. Um, the, the ancient Mesopotamians. Okay, this is where that was. They they held power for probably about three hundred years, and then Egypt then became the major world power. Babylon now starts to become a world power again around 600 um, B.C. all the way up until we see um, this area. So let's go to 2 Kings and we'll see where Babylon comes into the picture here. Let's go 2 Kings chapter 25. All right. So isn't it amazing in Arizona how quick we go from, my goodness, it is freezing in here and we need to blow heat in to now my mental reminder, hey, let's bring fans in next week. Uh, <laughs> gotta love the desert. All right. So speaking of that, let's get into the desert here. Um, follow Jerusalem. So we're at the very end of Judah here. 
Um, now, we'll actually pop back in a verse in 24. Now, Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, now this is a character that you are going to want um, um, to pay attention to. Nebuchadnezzar not only was a powerful and often spoke of character in the Bible, but is a powerful and often spoke of character in in other history. Okay, and I, I, I hate to say that because Bible is history, but but when you look at the textbooks, you're not going to get Second Kings. So, um, but you will get the story of ancient Babylon. You will get the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And and from now on, as we look at the Bible, you're going to be able to go and see in textbooks, even though they disagree with the Bible for the most part. Um, you're going to start you're going to start seeing the kingdoms, the the Babylonians. You're going to start seeing um, the Medes and the Medo-Persians, and you're going to see the progression into the Greeks and into the Roman Empire. Okay? So, um, he encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was, verse 2, the city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine of the city began to become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, um, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled towards Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered. He was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Ribelah, where the sentence was pronounced on him. They killed his sons. Uh, they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. That's the end of um, Jerusalem. Okay. So now Nebuchadnezzar, over a period of a couple years had gone in and they basically took over Judah and they set up a vassal king there. The vassal king disobeyed him, um, Jehoiakim, Kim, and so they sacked him. They put um, Nebuchadnezzar put um, Zedekiah in charge. Zedekiah ends up going against the Babylonians and tries to ally against others. The Babylonians wouldn't have anything for that. And so the Babylonians came in and absolutely took over Jerusalem. From this point on... From this point on, all the way until 1940s, 48, but in the 1940s is the the next time that Israel would actually have control over over their capital. And and even then, they don't have the full control. Okay, so here's the point where Jerusalem is sacked. Okay, they're done. Now, notice how they um, were able to do it. They, They did siege warfare. Um, we talked about a couple weeks ago Jericho, how it fell. Well, God allowed the walls to fall, okay, so um, through a miracle. Well, Babylon didn't have that, so they just basically had to wait Jerusalem out. And they waited, and they waited until people starved, and then finally the people fled. Um, the, um, they broke through, walls came down, and, and they took them. Um, notice how, how har- harsh they were to the king who betrayed them, Zedekiah. Um, this was a, a typical, it was, it's a brutal tactic, but it was a typical tactic of ancient warfare. Once you capture the king, um, you would you would basically sit him down and you would kill his entire family in front of him and then you'd immediately take out his eyes so that's the last thing he sees and he has to live with that the rest of his life. And so it's a, it's a brutal tactic. This is what happens here. Um, from this point on, um, Babylon, or not Babylon, Babylon takes um, 
um, the Jews and brings them captive. He, they do it in, in several different segments. Um, the first segment that they do actually happens before this. They start bringing some of the best of the best. Okay, So this Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, we've asked national churches to, to bring the very best, to point out your future leaders... Um, and we're asking from junior and high school all the way up until about age 29. And we're having churches all over the nation, including Cornerstone, say, hey, we, we want to identify um, some future leaders. And we want to bring them to this conference. And we want to try to convince them that before you sell your wares to Intel, not that there's anything wrong with Intel, but before you sell your wares, your talents, and all your gifting to a secular organization, why not give God a shot and see if God may be calling you into ministry? And so Babylon sort of does a little bit of this. Um, when they take over foreign territories, instead of just weighing lace to them, they actually take the best out of them, including the people. Um, because they figure that um, every culture you can bring something to bear to help Babylon out. And so when they took over Judah, they went and they looked and they found the best. So that's going to progress us all the way up to Daniel. Turn to the book of Daniel. And one other thing to, to understand, Judah didn't become a desert town. Okay? They actually left some of the Jews back there um, to farm. They left the poorest of the poor back there to farm, tend the, um, um, the fields, um, um, take care of certain things. So they did leave some Jews back in, in, in Judah. But by now, for the most part, most of the, most of the Jews um, are over in Babylon. If you have your mental map or you have a real map, and I'm sorry, I should have just printed out a map for you guys. Um, if you're looking at, um, if you've got um, Jerusalem and then you've got um, um, Babylon, you'll notice that there is a massive there is a massive desert that goes in between them. This desert was pretty much an impassable desert. No one would actually want to go through there. So what they what they would do is they would travel the fer- what's called the Fertile Crescent, and they would they would travel this sort of crescent arched roadway and this was the major path from the orient over into europe okay so they would travel this this um um, fertile crescent and so that that's where that's where they would have gone so the whole caravan would have gone up and over and back down and basically that's because the river systems sort of flowed that way so no one would ever want to go through the desert same thing happened down in Egypt they would they would travel the northern way and so as Moses was um, fleeing he actually didn't travel the northern way he actually went through the desert which was a smarter move um, for him so they would go all the way over there and they would land in um, Babylon which is what we would know um, modern day Baghdad Babylon at that point was was the biggest city in the world okay it, it was huge it was beautiful. It was ornate. Um, it was definitely, Babylon is definitely one of the greatest empires or kingdoms um, that ever was on the earth. It was absolutely um, beautiful. Do I need to go down further? Up further? Right about there. Down. Right there. All right. I'll keep it. I'll just touch it right there. Okay. So, uh, so Babylon was, was, was again, one of the, one of the top cities. Um, one of the ancient wonders of the ancient world was in Babylon. Anybody know what that is? 
Yes, the Hanging Gardens. Okay, so the Hanging Gardens. Now there is actually a little bit of de- uh, debate in modern scholarship. Some think actually the Hanging Gardens were in Nineveh, um, um, and we're resting a lot of um, um, trust on a couple historians. But um, but there's also a possibility that there was multiple types of these Hanging Gardens. But the the famous Hanging Gardens, um, until proven otherwise, was in Babylon. Now, as you picture Hanging Gardens, I, I would picture sort of. Um, how I used to picture it was sort of, you know, you hang them on a chain, you put a pot, and you let it come down. That had nothing to do with what the hanging gardens were like. It was basically this huge tower, this huge palace, that on every foundation, every level had like a Garden of Eden type. It was just absolutely beautiful. And so some seven, eight, nine, ten stories high, they would have balconies and platforms, so you would not only... Um, walk under them. You'd walk through the gardens. This was a major uh, undertaking for for this time, because what what would be the major problem you would see with having gardens? Water and how to get the water up. And so they invented a lot of incredible um, resources in how to get the water up. Um, the ten stories. Not only that, but how you had to line the 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 palace because water ruins foundations. So they uh, absolute ingenious. You want to look that up sometime on how the hanging gardens um, came about. But it's absolutely beautiful. This was all all part of Babylon. Um, Babylon had a lot of palaces, a lot of temples. Again, this is where the original Tower of Babel would have been, whether there was any remnants to that, we don't know, um, but there were definitely towers and ziggurats, okay, the ziggurats, you guys know what that is, um, very similar to the, the temples, or the, the temples of the pyramids of Egypt, ziggurat would be this sort of um, tiered um, um, pyra- uh, pyramid type structure um, that would have a stairway that would go all the way up to the top. Um, as we look at Noah, when, when we have the original dispersion from the Tower of Babel, um, you see a lot of the, the Hamitic tribes that ended up um, um, resting in this area of the world, ended up going down into Egypt, and the rest of the Hamitic tribes ended up going all the way over into the Western Hemisphere. And it's amazing that from these Hamitic tribes, you see these things. You see the pyramids, you see the ziggurats, and you see the same thing happening down in Mesoamerica. Okay, um, Only in the Hamitic tribes do you see those. So it's, it's pretty cool how those um, float out. So let's look at Daniel. Daniel is a prophetic book, um, but it also has history in it, okay? So it also talks about history. Um, it goes through two different uh, major uh, major empires. Um, it goes through, obviously, um, the Babylonians with um, Nebuchadnezzar, but it also um, goes through, and we start getting into the, um, the Medo-Persian kings, Okay, a couple other things before we get into Daniel. Some of the other things that were happening um, during this time of King um, Nebuchadnezzar. Let's see if I can find anything we haven't talked about. Um, Confucianism, Buddhism, Taoism all started appearing um, in the Orient um, and in basically from India and then moved up. Okay, so those those um, ba- those really technically aren't religions. Those are um, those are. Ethical um, philo- philo- or philosophical ways of life. Um, we we're getting close um, to Pythagoras. We're getting close um, to the philosophical movement um, in Greece. We haven't quite got there yet, um, but all this stuff is starting uh, starting um, to move um, throughout. Um, let's see if there's any other thing in history that's happening. Um, that's 
pretty much it of the uh, of the big stuff. Um, the next century is where a lot of the the huge stuff is going to start landing. All right, so let's look at Daniel chapter one. Um, in the third in the third year of the reign of Je- Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now this is the one guy before um, Zedekiah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, um, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Um, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasure, uh, and put it in the house or of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, uh, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So he's basically looking for the Ivy League type um, students here. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king ass- assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and then after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen um, were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azra. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief officials for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance to that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, he looked healthier and better nourished than than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Okay, so we see um, the the uh, four young men, Daniel, and then what we would uh, eventually know as uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would come into play um, a little bit later into Daniel. Um, we see that they already are starting to say, you know what? Um, we can't go against God's command. And this would be a common thread for Daniel as he goes through this. Daniel is polite. Um, He does what the foreign government says. He's part of the program. As long as it doesn't go against um, his his God. And and here's one case where it did. Verse 15, um, or verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Asherah. So there they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. 
And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, King Cyrus would be outside of Babylon. Okay, so this is typical of ancient kingdoms. Um, we saw this happen um, about a thousand years earlier um, in Egypt. Okay, where the Pharaoh, Joseph, was another one of God's men who could understand visions, who was a man after God's own heart, basically. And throughout the history, these ancient um, civilizations, kings would always have these um, royal noblemen, magicians, enchanters, seers, to be alongside them. Um, there was a lot of things in the ancient world, obviously, that didn't make sense. And so they would use these enchanters to try to make sense of them. Now, Almost all the time, um, they might have helped by tricking the king or by getting him um, to believe in something, but most often they didn't present real truth. Daniel, on the other hand, much like Solomon, had incredible wisdom and incredible wisdom that was given to him. So Daniel had wisdom, and we talked about wisdom as seeing things the way God sees them. Daniel had that kind of wisdom, maybe not to the extent at, as Solomon did, but he had wisdom to understand literature, to pick up language, to understand all all these type of things. Um, there are some, and again, this is completely out of the Bible, but there are some that believe the whole hanging gardens, the way they were able to do that is because of Daniel. But that is totally reading into it. Um, there's there's really nothing in Scripture that takes um, takes that under consideration. But but what we do know is Daniel was absolutely brilliant. He was able. He was ten times greater than anything um, the king had at his um, disposal. So chapter two, we will finally get into Daniel's first real test. Um, one thing you'll notice throughout the Bible, when, when men and women are given opportunities to serve, when they're given opportunities by God and they're placed into a divine position, they still have to, they still have to move forward in faith. Okay? We saw that, um, um, with David. Um, he was placed into a, an unusual position for a young person to be able to stand up and represent. Remember, David represented the king who was terrified in his tent. He represented the king against Goliath. But he still had to act act out on faith. Okay, He was put there, but he still has to act out. Um, Joseph was put into position, but he still had to answer the call. Here we go again. Daniel is put into a prime position to move, but he still has to answer the call. Okay? And we don't know how many people throughout the, how, throughout history that God has put into a prime position that didn't answer the call. Because we don't read about them. Okay? And so, here, here's Daniel. And let's look at chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me. I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. That's always a good way to start. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. Okay, so this is common. Kings have dreams, doesn't understand it. He brings in all his noblemen. He said, Here's what this dream was about. This big pig was chasing me and all, and I, and I jumped off and I, right before I landed, I woke up or whatever. Okay? And so, and how many have ever wanted one of your dreams interpreted? So what on earth was that? Okay? And some dreams we, and it's weird as we go up, and I, or grow up, when I was a child, dreams used to scare me. I used to have all these beliefs. Oh man, if, if I fall off a cliff and I actually land, I might die. I, I heard that. And so I gotta make sure. And at some point in my life, you, you, 
as you dream, you start figuring out, hey, wait, I actually can start thinking a little bit in my dream. Like, okay, I, I probably need to wake up. I'm not sure how to do that yet, but I need to wake up. And we, we start having, and we start figuring out a little bit of dreams, but even to this date, dreams still confuse us and still uh, mesmerize us. Some are basic and some, some we don't realize, um, were a dream until, how many have ever had like, um, half a day later you're going through and you are assuming something happened and you went, wait a second. That was a dream. That never really happened. And, 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 but you've already said it. So weird things with dreams. So back in ancient times, kings needed these things answered. And the basic call was they would tell them the dream and then the noblemen, um, would tell them on what it was. That was a great racket for magicians, enchanters, seers. Okay. Great racket because as long as they understood what the dream was about, then who cares what they say? They're just going to tell them what it says. And as long as it makes sense and they can do some hocus pocus with it, then that's cool. Nebuchadnezzar throws a little little twist in this one. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house is turned into piles of rubble. I'm sure some, they yelled, may the king live forever? <laughs> Again. But, but I tell you, but, I, or, but if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards, great and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it. Okay, what was the twist the king added to his little charade here? Yeah, actually tell me what I dreamed. Okay, if you're so good, tell me what I dreamed. And at that point, you're like, oh, this is like one of those um, um, skeptics that goes after um, uh, magicians. Remember Houdini w- was doing that a little bit. and what, I just Randy um, 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 used to do that in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I think he had like a million-dollar prize if someone could prove to him that they weren't <laughs> um, hooligans. And so, so the king's all, you know what, if you're so good, tell me what my dream is. And if you were a magician at that point, could you imagine your heart dropping? I, I can't imagine going, oh, wow. That, yeah, so th- this is what happens. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream... There is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among humans. Okay? So the magicians finally said, yeah, it's impossible. This is, this is not natural. It's actually supernatural. And in a way, they were right. There is no one on earth through simple naturalistic means can tell you what you just dreamed and even more so interpret it. Only the gods can. Okay? So they were actually right. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to 
to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put uh, to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch the Then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained to the matter, the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azra. He urged them to plead for mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel. Um, in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He disposes kings and raises others up. He gives wisdom to the wise um, and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what I asked you, and you have made known to us the dream of the king. Okay, so pretty powerful statement there. Obviously, Daniel wasn't in the room at at, at the original ask, so Daniel finally does ask, hey, what's the deal? The guy tells him. Um, He goes, and he asks his friends, and they basically start praying, okay? Okay. Here's a great example of what all Christians and all believers of God should do. Anytime there's a major monumental task at hand, the first thing you do is pray. Um, And not only do you pray by yourself, but you pray with others. You lift it up. Okay? And so God... And the other thing we need to understand, remember, we always have to put our, our, our feet into the sandals of these people. Daniel and his friends are praying to a God that in their lifetime he watched in the worldly sense, didn't show up and, 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 and Judah was taken captive. They're praying to a God that allowed Babylon to take, to destroy the temple, which is a big deal, to destroy the temple, take the entire nation captive, but yet they still have faith. So obviously Daniel realized that what had happened was a punishment from God and God often used foreign nationalities to inflict judgment upon Israel when they were being disobedient, okay? And so um, he still had incredible faith. Here's the interpretation of, of the dream. Then Daniel went to, to Arach, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not um, execute the wise men of Babylon. Now that's, stop right there. Okay? Some might look at Daniel and go, What a great opportunity to get rid of all these idiots, to get rid of all these heathens, all these Satan worshipers. Why not? But but Daniel doesn't do that. Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Um, Arioch um, took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. Now, you need to understand that is incredible courage. And Joseph shows similar courage in front of Pharaoh. 
the king could have had Daniel be- killed before another word exited his mouth. So he took a great risk to start out his sentence and start out his explanation with that. Okay, so that, that incredible courage there. But there is a God in heaven who reveals, and notice it didn't say gods, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know that the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Okay, so again, Daniel's being incredibly humble here. I mean, he's being accurate, but he's being humble. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Okay, and as we start describing the statue, it's going to—it's actually really important. So start paying attention to what the different pieces of the statue, what they're made of, and all that kind of stuff. The head of the statue is made of pure gold. Its chest and arms are of silver. Its belly and thighs of bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet partial or partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, the rock was cut out, but not because of human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then, then the iron, the clay, the bronze and the silver and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now will I interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heavens has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all of mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. Okay, remember I told you how Babylon was great and powerful? It was great and powerful. Okay. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw the feet and the toes were partially were partly baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with the baked clay, so the the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay." In this time, or in the time, those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it uh, be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will be, or it, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold pieces, or two pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. 
the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. And then there would probably be silence. <laughs> the king Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel. Okay, you might want to underline that because that is, that's something that doesn't happen. Okay, the king, remember, is he a powerful king? Yes. Is he a most powerful king currently on, in the world? Yes. What did he just do? Fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and, and increase be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and made him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Pretty cool story in the Bible, okay? Many people will think that's just a story. Um, here's the deal with this. There are a lot of prophecies in the Bible. This one has has messed with the minds of historians. It really has. So much so, there is definitely an effort in academia to post-date this. Because they look at this and they said, there is no way on earth someone could have known this before it happened. There's no way on earth that someone could have known this before it happened. And not just chapter 2, but some of the other passages that come and back it up. Um, here's, here's what this means as you look into the history. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was king of who? And Daniel himself told him what, what, it, what his part of the statue was. What was it? The head, the gold. He was above um, the others, especially the one that would follow. Okay, what was the next, um, if you know your history, what was the next major empire, and actually we would see it happen within the, the pages of Daniel, what was the next major um, empire um, to come to bear? Yeah, the Persians, or the Medo-Persians, it would be the Medes and the Persians together, would be the next empire. Babylon would be done, uh, by the way, Assyria was before Babylon, and at the same time, but Assyria happened before, um, Assyria was also a great empire, but it had already passed by the time um, we're getting into a lot of this, okay? So after Babylon, we have the Medo-Persian Empire, which was a powerful empire. Um, we will talk about that in a couple weeks, because the, the book of Esther plays out during this time. King Xerxes, okay? Um, when you look at, um, for those of you who, who were able to stomach and watch the original 300, um, and see the, the, the famous Battle of Thermopylae, which happened in 480 BC, that was, that was Xerxes. That's Esther's husband, most likely. Okay? So this is the Medo-Persian Empire. After the Persians, who took over? And it had a lot to do with that, that battle. Who, who was the next great empire? Greece, okay? So the Greek Empire, and who was the main, main pusher of that empire? Or at least the, the spread of it. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was one of the great military minds. But here's what people underestimate about Alexander the Great. He was also just plainly one of the great minds. Okay? When you look at the great, when you look at the great, um, philosophers, for those who have ever taken philosophy in school, na- name some great classic Hellenistic, which means from Greece, um, philosophers. Who were they? Okay, so we've, we've got Socrates or Socrates, Bill and Ted's. Okay, we've got Socrates. We've got who's who's. Okay, we got Aristotle. We got Plato. 
you realize the fourth one that's often listed is actually Alexander. Okay, he was a great philosophical mind. Okay, he trained under um, these philosophers. So he's a brilliant mind. He took over the world. He took over the world in an incredible way. He took it over culturally. Okay, um, often people go, well, why, why, why do we have to go back to the Greek language? Well, it's Alexander's fault. Okay, it, when, when we look at the Bible and we look at the New Testament, we look at a lot of it was written, uh, or all of it was written in Greek, um, and we have to go back to that Greek language. Um, it's, it's Alexander's fault. Okay, he basically took over the world, and everybody spoke Greek. Everybody um, culturally acted like Greeks. Um, they were Hellenized. This drove um, the Jews nuts, by the way. Um, so, so you follow the Greeks, and then what? What came after the Greeks? Rome. Okay, so you got four big empires. These were listed out in succession. Now, obviously, it doesn't say Greece, Rome, and Persia. Um, but as you look at this, and we'll study this closer when we get to Daniel and we actually talk about the prophetic nature. I'm just giving you the historical side of um, the statue. Um, when we talk about Daniel in a week, we'll talk about the prophetic um, nature of it. Um, but you've got, you've got Babylon. You've got uh, the chest uh, of silver and the arms of silver, um, which would have been Persia or Medo-Persia. Um, um, you've got the belly and the thigh. You've got um, Greece. And then following the iron, You've got um, um, Rome. You notice each one of those um, um, materials, gold, silver, bronze, um, obviously if you know the Olympics, you know those escalate down um, in value and worth, and then iron iron would be the lowest. We're not going to talk about the whole mixture of clay. We'll, we'll save that because that's a major prophetic piece. Okay, So this, this vision was, was of Daniel. It was a powerful vision. It would come out to play, and it would follow along. A lot of, a lot of Daniel's um, prophecies absolutely mesmerized people. Um, his prophecies not only happened within the scope of his generation, but a lot of prophecies in Daniel have to deal with the, the second coming, um, the, the revelation pieces, um, which we'll talk about as well. Ezekiel was another prophet that was brought into captivity around the same time. So a lot of his um, um, prophecies dealt with, with the, the future pieces as well. So Daniel, again, a great, what we're, next week we're going to talk about more about Daniel, more specifically him and, um, his prophecies, how they come about. We'll get into Ezekiel, um, um, and then the week after that we're going to talk about the exile, which actually, the entire church, we're, we're doing Nehemiah, so, um, we're going to be right in line with what the rest of the church is uh, talking about as well. And during that time, we're going to talk about Esther. We definitely wouldn't want to leave, um, Esther and Persia, um, um, out of this. And then that really, in just a couple weeks, that's going to take us out of the Old Testament. We're going to, we'll be done with the Old Testament. We are going to spend one week, if you notice on your calendar, one week outside of the Bible. Okay, we're going to, outside of the Bible, we're going to talk about what happened between the Old and New Testaments. And the reason why um, we haven't really paid attention too much what happened in between the other years of silence, this is a real important year of silence because the world that Jesus would step into is totally different than the world Malachi died in. Okay, totally different scene. You'll notice in the Old Testament, you're not going to see mentions of Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes. You're not going to see any mention of that because they didn't exist. All that came to bear during the intertestinal period. And the intertestinal period fascinates me because there, it's amazing how God absolutely set the pieces in every possible way for Jesus to come into the world. It was absolutely critical for the gospel to be spread. Um, if certain things were not done, then it would have been a lot harder for the gospel to spread, and we'll, um, we'll explain that. Plus, we'll talk about some of the extra biblical books and, and why, why isn't Maccabees 
in in the Protestant Bible. And so what's the deal with that? Um, and so we'll, we'll talk about that because Maccabees is actually a great history to read. Um, so um, any questions on um, the captivity? Captivity lasted 70 years. Okay. Anything else? All right, well, let's pray and then let's flee to windy areas. All right, dearly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you... Um, um, for your word, we thank you um, as we follow this thread, how majestic is your is your brain um, and, and, and to be able to to put all these things in motion and, and to rise up leaders like a Daniel, like a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were placed in absolutely perfect positions um, to be used by you and heavenly Father, um, we understand that they they weren't any different than anybody in this in this tent and I just pray that um, for each and every one of us as you call us um, to take a stand as you call us down our path and you place us in those divine um, positions and relationships with the people around us, the employers, the employees we might have, um, the different circumstances in our life. Um, I pray that you will allow us to realize, um, as Daniel did, that you are the God um, of gods and, and you are um, who we need to follow and that um, if we would just, um, by faith, allow you to move in our lives, um, great things would happen. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for the opportunity um, to be part of this church. We thank you for Cornerstone. And, and Heavenly Father, we ask for wisdom as we as we move into this next phase in Cornerstone's history. I, I pray that you give um, Pastor Lynn, I pray you give the staff and the elders just incredible wisdom to see things the way you see them and to see our future the way you see them. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for just the blessings you're pouring out and just just the, the, the joy and the fun that, that we see on the horizon that we're seeing right now. Heavenly Father, uh, be with us, um, protect us um, until next week. In your precious name we pray, amen.